Hey everybody, we're back in the savage seat of what would the savage party do? <laughs> Part three. <Wow. laughs> I know, that took me seconds to dream up. <laughs> oh, welcome back to what would the smart party do? Uh, I'm Baz and I'm over here and over there is Gaz. Hello mate. Hi Baz, how's it going? All good? Yeah, it's going good. Um, uh, we are going to continue, aren't we? This is Have we done a three-parter before? I don't think we have. No, this is the first time. Wow. This is like the return of the king <laughs> of podcasts <laughs> with extra elves. Um, if you don't know what we're on about, uh, we're going to start talking about Savage Worlds again in a second. And this will be uh, part three of an ongoing series. Who knows if it'll be the last one? Maybe we'll do six or seven. I we might as well it. just run this forever. <laughs> just just, call it, yeah, just change the name of the podcast. Just <laughs> Nothing but Savage all the time until the end of eternity. I'll probably be all right um, but that. we've done two, haven't we? We've walked through the through the new Savage Worlds uh, uh, Adventure Edition, mm -hmm. and we've been through the whole thing now in some depth. So scroll back on your podcast feed and listen to the last two episodes uh, if you are at all curious about Savage Worlds and what it's been up to recently. Um, but for now, we're going to take it into a new topic. Yeah, so the first couple of episodes we did were quite the nuts and bolts of the book, a proper walkthrough. Uh, telling you what's new and what's different and just general thoughts as well if, if you're brand new to the game but um, that is quite rulesy and perhaps doesn't give you the right level of excitement about Savage Worlds because one of the good things about having a toolkit system is that you can run it for all kinds of settings uh, and I got super excited this week going back looking at my bookshelves and through my PDF mines mm -hmm. and various other things at like the massive amount of setting material there is for all kinds of different worlds for Savage Worlds uh, yeah, there's loads. Now, um, I guess in the spirit of openness, I should say that my experience with Savage Worlds is a little bit dated. I was there kind of at the beginning mm -hmm. uh, when it all kicked off, uh, as as was Gaz, and we played, oh, I don't know, hundreds of sessions together probably across dozens of different settings. We were deep, deep, deep into Savage Worlds. I drifted away into other things, but you've stayed true to the flame, haven't you? So my knowledge of this part of it might be a little bit dated, um, but I don't think it is. I've tried to keep abreast of stuff, and and I'll I'll certainly have some questions that hopefully, guys, you're a bit closer to to mainlining Savage at the moment that you'd be able to help us out with this stuff. Sure. I mean, I I was probably I probably sold more copies of Savage Worlds than any other GM in England. I would say the amount of games I used to run of it, <laughs> and people would rush outside to to buy a copy immediately. Um, so if Peg wants to send me some some money or vouchers or free stuff, like feel free. Like I'm not trying to guilt you into anything, but. I kept you afloat for 10 years. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it feels a little bit... We talk about the role-playing industry at the minute, don't we? And so, like, you used to be able to, like, get your hands around it and you used to be able to play, or at least know every game out there. Um, mm. And it's got to the point now where there's too many games. And I think a little bit, that's what Savage Worlds is like. So I've probably got a core set of stuff that I'm interested in and I've kept abreast of or I've run. But there's so many settings, certainly by third parties as well, that it's impossible to know them all. At least in, in mm. any depth, anyway, you can be vaguely aware. So, you know, there might be some things that I'm not too aware of, Baz, but that's that's simply a testament to the extent of the market there is out there. Yeah. So broad overviews then. Uh, let me let me put this out there as a question, because it's something that I see raised on the internet all the time. Um, Savage World settings, have they got zombies in all of them? Because for a little while there, it looked like it was. Do you remember when the um, when the uh, when the the whole of media was was kind of zombie heavy, wasn't it? It was 
almost yeah. everywhere. Before that, it was vampires, and then we had like a you know Walking Dead stuff like that, and it was peak zombie just about everywhere. And Savage Worlds kind of like was there right at the beginning, and they just stuck some Walking Dead on everything and called it a setting. Was that ever a fair criticism? Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's necessarily true, but I definitely know what you mean. Um, it's one of the things that uh, Shane Lacey Hensley, who's basically the head honcho, the, the inceptor and uh, mentor of all Savage World stuff, uh, he likes zombies, and he also likes great white sharks. So you'll see Pinnacle Entertainment Group had a white shark for their um, emblem for quite some time mm. and that kind of thing. So he's definitely got his favourite things they like to have seen settings if he could. That doesn't necessarily mean they were in everything, but um, yeah, mm. any chance the guys at, at Savage got to stick zombies in something, they would stick zombies in because it was a, it was yeah. just a favourite of the guys writing the stuff basically. Okay, that's fair. So let me broaden that out a little bit. Then, is it then fair to say that if you're playing Savage Worlds in a setting, you're probably playing something that's a little bit pulp, maybe even a bit cartoony? I've heard it described as a very camp game. I don't know if you've heard that one before, but I kind of get where that's coming from when you're thinking about you know, Technicolor movie posters from the 50s, like Mars Attacks, that kind of stuff is is perhaps seen as a little bit camp. What do you reckon yeah, okay. that as a, an observation? Yeah, maybe. I mean, the most um, frequent sort of common touch point I can see is PG-13, it tends to be. So mm. if you're playing a Pirates game, for example, it would be like um, you know the, the Black Pearl or whatever, the, the Disney sort of films a little bit or certainly the first one in that there could be danger there and there's like you know scary stuff or whatever but um, not many people are just swearing or doing absolutely evil stuff so that you know the governor's daughter will get kidnapped but then you, you draw a veil over what might happen to her or anything there's no need for any unpleasant scenes so I think generally Savage tends to be of that kind of ilk in that it's, it's uh, more of an action adventure and a bit more not for kids but like it doesn't have to have like hardcore grim adult content either it's more of a, a middle ground of films for all the family kind of stuff I guess is where you put it if that makes any sense okay yeah it does I mean I think the kind of the horror element is 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 pretty it's laid on pretty thick I think through most of the setting stuff there's always a bit of that kind of stuff but it's horror that would be you would see in um, in the thriller video that's the kind of level of yeah it. maybe or if you think of something like um, the Van Helsing movie with Hugh Jackman mm. do you know what I mean that's that's a horror movie ostensibly but it's all a little bit arch and um, theatrical and that kind of stuff so the scary elements to it but you know I don't think generally you know a hardened horror fan would, would be like hiding behind the sofa at that but you can certainly have a grim mm. mood and things but it's just got that kind of I don't know pulpy narrative kind of story to it and everything's a little yeah. bit can be a little bit over the top almost by some standards I don't know I mean you can play it however you want I've certainly been challenged online when I, when I say these sort of things not least of which by people from Pentacle themselves who say you play a game <laughs> however you want which which is true it's the same as when we were talking to Mike Mills about D&D and he was saying you could make it about a cooking competition if you want to well you could but that's not really the strength of D&D and similarly for Savage Worlds you can play it however you want but really it's for like PG-13 action adventures sort of thing mm. you know there's, there's a lot of swing room in there but that's the kind of area we're in I think yeah and it's it suits me down to the ground I, I think it is adventure with a capital A it's those kind of uh, serial uh, escapades uh, it reminds me of the sort of films I like like the Three Musketeers from the 70s yes um, and uh, 
and stuff like uh, Indiana Jones yeah. and The Mummy and all of those kind of things and lots of comic stuff too, really. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's, that's its strength. And that comes from, you know, listen back to the last couple of episodes and we, we talked about some of the rules and how the system supports that kind of thing and go back there for more on it. But that's the system strength. Where then, where is the weakness? Because if it's a generic toolkit game, I think by its by its nature there's be some things which is perhaps ill suited to or you'd be you'd be trying very very hard to twist it into something that it's not really suited for where wouldn't you go with savage you said i personally wouldn't go towards call of Cthulhu, for example they did do there was a realms of chaos or something like that i think they i think it was called i can't remember off the top of my head which had a sanity mechanic and it was basically savage worlds for Cthulhu, but it didn't feel like it was the right sort of game for that sort of setting or genre mm. i don't know I think anything that's too gritty or detailed. So um, there are a couple of supplements for things like the Vietnam War or that kind of stuff, but it, then it just feels like a miniatures game. It doesn't, you know, you don't get the horrors of being in the Vietnam War or anything like that. You're not role playing uh, Marines in dire circumstances and the moral choices generally. The, the supplements tend to be about, like, here's how many VC there are to shoot and this kind of stuff on the, you know. So anything where you're trying to get a little too grimy or detailed or grainy about stuff, I'd say it's probably not really what it's there for. Or, you know, the rules aren't bent towards mm. supporting that sort of play. You can still do that if you want. You can have whatever backdrop you wish. Um, but it's based around characters being competent as well. I think this was discussed in the rules. You quite often yes. achieve stuff. So if you're looking for a game where you think your players should struggle all the time, then the system's really bent towards them succeeding. So that's not really the sort of thing you want to do. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a fair observation. But strangely, at the other extreme, and I well, maybe it's not strangely because these are extremes, aren't they? <laughs> the book itself does declare that actually, if you want to do superheroes, you're probably going to need to bolt on more stuff than the core game will give you to make yeah. that happen. So, at the other end of the scale, then, if you're going for like cosmic level powers and the sort of stuff that we might see in the Marvel Cinematic Universe these days, then Savage Worlds is probably going to start to creak a little bit. Yeah, so it's like you mentioned the mummy movie. That the mummy would be the villain who'd have lots of monster powers that can do over the top stuff, but the actual characters that are in, in in the film as the protagonists are more down to earth people. They might be two fisted heroes and they can, you know, punch ten bad guys in the face and get away with it, but they're not like over the top superpowers. So yeah, mm. you're right. But as you mentioned as well, there are toolkit systems for sci fi, for supers, for other stuff like that. So if you want extra layers to it. You can, you can get that stuff to up the power level or increase the flexibility. Yeah, and I think if you listen to our last episode where we talked about some of the toolkit approach that they used to adventures, I think the core book now has probably got enough in there. It's probably more flexible than it used to be uh, and more supported than it used to be to give you all kinds of different flavours. And there's a massive amount in the middle, isn't there, between like a low-key investigation and moon shattering cosmic powers yeah that's almost every other type of game is supported by it isn't it yeah and as we mentioned last time there's those setting rules so if you want to add rules where the heroes can't die or it's really hard to injure them or they recover really quickly mm. or that kind of stuff you can add all those things in to, to give a different flavour to the game okie dokie right so uh, apart from those things Savage Worlds is one of those toolkit games where you can play most stuff and certainly the stuff that, that gets rolled out at gaming tables all over the world which is like adventure heavy and competent people going off to do important things and save the world cool so before we get into the settings then 
can I just sort of take you back 20 years then, Gaz, mm. to um, to conversations we were having when we were reading the design diaries for Savage Worlds. And before the game was even released, we were thinking, what could we do with this? There's a couple of things I wanted to touch on and see if you remember this, you still think it's true. One of them was that we were talking about how Savage Worlds could be the engine that gets all of your other stuff off the shelves and actually played. Mm. So if you've got a big stack of adventures or you might have been thinking, I'm desperate to run this game of, I don't know, Vampire, whatever it was back in the day, but you you, know, you knew you were never going to do that. But you thought, oh, I, if I use Savage and get everybody on board, then I could probably start pulling books off the shelf and run them almost on the fly. So that was item one. It, do you think that's still a thing? Was it ever a thing? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I've used Savage for TV series and films and you know novels and all kinds of stuff, uh, and that equally applies, as you say, to uh, to settings. So, Earthdawn, you know, God's finest game, I will admit, is sometimes a little bit too crunchy for some people. So, quite often at conventions, for example, I ran Earthdawn or Earthdawn Adventures using the Savage World system with a bit of a reskin because it was just easier to do that. And I think for certain other uh, games, I've got. Savage just makes them, whether inaccessible to some people, if they don't like BRP or they don't like Hero Quest or whatever it might be that someone rubs up against the wrong way, you can say, well, I'll just Savage it. And, you know, people instantly on board because there's lots of games out there that have got great settings that the systems some people don't like for whatever reason, you know. I mean, equally, there's games with great systems that people don't like the setting for, but that's not what we're talking about. So, yeah, I think it's definitely true. I think it's still true if you want to. Um, if you've got something you don't think you can run or you don't want to, I don't know. Like perhaps thirteenth age for some people's got too many rules and abilities for all the characters, and they don't want to have that much detail and want to lighten it up a little bit, but still use all the stuff from thirteenth age because the world building sounds cool and icons and everything sound great. Savage it, why not? Yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, I I think that's still true as well. I was considering this week. Um, we were saying off air a, a chance has come for me to run a one shot this week uh, with about three days' notice, and I immediately started thinking, well, what could I run? And I started thinking of systems, and it turns out I'm probably going to run a Call of Cthulhu game. Um, but I was thinking of a few different things to do. But because I'm not match fit, I didn't think Savage Worlds. But actually, if I were match fit, if I were up to the level of like you know understanding the game and having a few things in folders and having a few characters ready to rock and roll, my prep, I'm sure my prep would be 15 minutes, hmm. and, and I'd be up and running a game. I think Savage Worlds is so runnable and playable once you've got your head around it I think it may be debatable as to whether there's it's a bit harder to get your head around it these days than it used to be but I still think it's a, it, it's a pretty sure on-ramp from reading to playing and that means that it opens up the rest of your library to potentially getting played yeah definitely if you remember the GM advice in the book from, from last week that said start off small as well so you don't have to remember everything at mm. first you know start with the basic rules and then as you get more match fit you can keep laying on more of the stuff that's in there so uh, yeah, I, I mean, for for years and years, certainly going to conventions and stuff, when I need emergency games or extra games, I thought I might need to. I just stick three or four Savage games in my in my backpack. You know, I've got tons of um, those Polly Pocket, um, you know, like little plastic poly, polythene things with a, a set of five characters and a, a few notes stuffed in for various different Savage settings and games. Uh, and they're still all piled up somewhere in the wardrobe. They're only refreshing now due to the new rules or anything. But uh, ultimately. It's a great pick up and play thing. Once you've got the rules sorted out, um, applying them to different settings is, is generally quite easy. I think, and well, we might get into this later, but I think some of the settings fall down from having too many rules or too much complication in. And the, the advice in the designer's notes has always been from Savage Worlds is to change as little as possible 
reskin it, put different names on things if you want, or add flavour, but you shouldn't be adding too many new edges or new skills or anything like that. The core mechanic's pretty solid. Cool. Right, so the second thing that I wanted to bring up at this point was the big idea that we had 20 years ago. I don't know if this ever came to fruition or not. We were talking with our mate Pete, one of the original Smart Party, and his favourite video game of all time is Time Splitters. Mm. So multi-genre stuff seemed to me to be a really big selling point for Savage Worlds. And I'm interested to see that in the current book, the generic PCs that they use... They seem to be suggesting that they use that as a skin for all of their Savage Worlds games, no matter what setting they're playing in. Yeah. So they seem to have come back round to that idea that maybe you could generate a character called like Gabe, and Gabe could be a cowboy one day and a asteroid miner the next session, and could be playing as a paladin a few sessions down the line. Is multi-genre stuff doable? Because I don't recall seeing a huge amount of that kind of stuff supported apart from the fact you can have a library of settings. It definitely is. I've just written Time Splitters 2 down on my piece of paper. <laughs> it's, that means it's going to happen. Yeah, it's that perennial <laughs> thing that me and Pete talk about quite often, actually. Surprisingly often. Comes up every year. Um, yes, no, definitely. I mean, the, the way the skills are pretty generic, for example, just leads into that. So if you've got a character that's good at shooting if Gabe's a gunfighter in the Deadlands setting for example has detailing shooting that would equally apply if he's in Neo Tokyo with some kind of flechette gun or if he's Robin Hood with his longbow or something like that it's still just you shooting for everything so the way the skills and a lot of systems are quite generic in that sense and toolkit means that you can nip between different settings and still keep the characters pretty much as they are without having to need to think of new ways of doing things uh, and equally, as we sort of discussed with equipment, you're saying, you know, all I really need to know is that a rifle does 2d8. Well, brilliant. That's how much a longbow does, or a flechette gun, or whatever else. And you can keep the characters more or less the same and just reflavor what's happening in the world. So you could definitely do some kind of time traveling, genre changing uh, campaign, be in a different world every week, and um, that would work perfectly well. Yeah. I really want to do that. I'm thinking rotating GMs, a sort of a shared universe, you're an interdimensional cop team. You know, I'm reminded of how GURPS do it, and GURPS have got some superb source books for this. But you know, who really wants to get deep into GURPS when Savage Worlds is a thing? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's got to be the way to get it actually happening. So, can we stop mulling over it for another two decades and get some time splitters out? Let's <laughs> do it. We should stream it. Actually, that could be one of the things we stream. <laughs> Let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, Neo Tokyo though obviously is the best one. Yeah, we've right? got there a lot. I can't even remember them one. <laughs> that, that's where the time machine's based. So you have to keep going back there. Yeah, I think um, it's one as well. If you remember, we've got the extras rule, so you, your characters are wild cards and get the extra d6. But when if you're rotating gems, when your character's just um, a, a sort of sidekick and not a main character because you're gemming, uh, they just become an extra, so they don't get the wild dice. So you could still use them. Oh, cool. And have them on the journeys as well if you wanted to. Right, so that's done then. We've said it on air now. That's happening. Okay, Amazing. right. Next. So before we get into settings proper and some of our faves and I guess our war stories as well, I thought it might be a good idea to talk about plot points. Um, yeah. Plot point campaigns is one of those... It's a thing that I think Savage Worlds invented, but it probably looks kind of ubiquitous now, and I think people maybe don't realise where it came from in the first place because uh, I see elements of this in loads of different companies' output these days. So credit where credit's due. I always thought that the idea of a plot point campaign was brilliant. Not always sure they pulled it off perfectly every time. Uh, but 
guys, could you sum up what a plot point campaign is and why anyone should be interested in that? Yeah, so I think the, the first setting they brought out, if I remember correctly, is 50 Fathoms, and that's where we first saw this plot point idea. And uh, the elements of the plot points aren't necessarily new either. They come from other places necessarily, but it's the first time I saw it done well in one volume. And that's essentially that you have plot points, as in points of a plot, that will happen as an overarching story. And there might be several of these big sort of like headline points that happen along the journey before the final denouement of the campaign. Uh, but in between those points, you'd either create your own adventures, or the book has savage tales, I think they call them. So you've got like little encounters that can happen along the way, you mix things in. Um, and then the beauty of the plot point campaign as well, in certain like something like 50 Fathoms, is in the world of Charybdis, I think it's called. Um, there's a map with loads of locations, and each location will have something going on. And then savage tales will be connected to different locations, and locations will have pointers to other savage tales or to other people or plot points or something like that. So you've kind of got a big sandbox world that's got maybe half a page or something on each location, which is enough to give you an idea of something that might happen there. So you're never going to travel to an island and think, uh, I don't know what's here, and have to you know, struggle to make any kind of idea up. You'll have something unique about it, and it all in some way ties into something else in the world and generally to the overarching plot. So you've, you've got like the bones and some extra bits for a campaign there without having a railroady direct campaign i think that's probably the best summary i can give that's really good mate um, <laughs> i'm not sure i could have done it that well um one extra thing i would say is that is the benefit of all of that is that for the gm you don't have to internalize a 300 page mega dungeon or mega campaign so you have got your great big meta plot that can just sit happily in the background if you want to and you can bring it into the foreground or drop back away from it but you don't have to be constantly juggling an awful lot of stuff you've got loads of little bits and pieces that the individual characters were going to want to take care of with their backstories you've got a meta plot but the way that it's laid out is that you can you can literally flick to a location um and and open that up and there's probably half an evening's play there that would take you 30 seconds to prep for but then in in your downtime as a gm you can go back to see what's happening in the background and how much of it you want to pull forward or drop away from and the players and the GMs are kind of exploring this world and the campaign almost at the same time. You're just one step ahead, which is all you ever need to be. But there's a real feel, feeling for the GM that you're finding out about it at the same time as the players. That's quite a cool trick. Yeah. And and it's been used loads since. I think, you know, Paizo's adventure paths are a little bit like that. I think that sandboxes for the OSR are a little bit like that. There's bits and pieces that, that pull from all kinds of different kind of gaming theories and whatever um, but that first one out of the gate 50 fathoms for savage worlds i thought was was a real masterclass in how to present the campaign and, and i think the proof of that is that we played it and finished it and i must have done it twice mm. so i can't say that for an awful lot of big campaign books but it, it just ran itself almost it was a breeze to run and it was really exciting and it had a massive finish to it and wasn't the same both times out um, and two completely different parties took completely different routes through this water box, really. And I thought it was wonderful. Um, and it, it sort of set me up for a little bit of disappointment. I don't really think I've seen anything so good as the first one they did. Um, but I might not know about some of the ones that are out there. <laughs> yeah, the same. I was. I think it sort of spoiled me for all the other plot point adventures. Uh, as we said, there's so many settings now that I haven't read them all. Uh, but 50 Fathoms was definitely the original and the best. And as you say, it's come from all over the place. So things like 
you know, an exciting encounter at the Capital location. I mentioned other people as this great new idea, and all the hip indie crowd at the time going, "What you mean, like bangs?" And it's just like it's a you know, it's a theory or a, a method that people have been using with various guises for for a number of years, but. 50 Fathoms brought it all together in a cohesive way that mm. worked like you say you can run through twice and it'll be two different paths and, and endings from it so I really like the um, a lot of stuff about 50 Fathoms and I like the openness of Pinnacle because um, I think Shane said originally the idea for the world was it'd be a completely drowned world so there would be no land it'd just be you know just one big ocean essentially uh, and he wanted to call it 50 Fathoms so that was all great and then he looked it up and realised that a fathom was only 6 feet so actually, yeah. it's like <laughs> sort of partially like up to the neck drowned world, you know. Um, <laughs> but I like that he stuck with it. He went, "Well, okay, that that's not what I thought it was, but let's just carry on." Uh, and that led to cool ideas, like as you're sailing along, you can see drowned cities beneath your boat, and you have to risk, you know, yeah. you might uh, keel your boat or something, or get end up with a, what used to be a church spire now in the bottom of your hull, or something like that, and you can see these half-seen murky cities depending on where the tide is and stuff like that. So. By taking an idea and just sticking with it, despite having some unusual things that you found along the way, it's ended up with a really interesting setting as well. Mm. And I, I really like the uh, the way that he onboards characters into it too, because the thing that I'd forgotten until I went back and did a tiny bit of research is that your PCs can come from any time in Earth's history. Mm. So the conceit is that all of those ships that go missing in Earth's history um, I've really just been magically transported to this ocean world of Charybdis through a giant whirlpool or whatever it is. So you could have like a German uh, U-boat sailors um, on the same on the same schooner as uh, Bluebeard and you know some uh, some fishermen off the north coast of Scotland. It's it's a really nice way of getting all kinds of stuff happening that that it's uh, it literally throws the kitchen sink of PCs together, but gives you a reason to have anyone you want. So it does. It just opens up so many ideas for getting the party together because it just says whatever you want is possible, and I just think that's loads of fun. And it's not. It's not exactly a pirate source book. They would come on to do that sort of stuff later, but even though you're playing in what is ostensibly a piratical game, it can take on all kinds of different flavors depending on how you approach those plot points. Mm. Um, it, it was just clever as anything, really, and it seemed so obvious at the time. And you've got native. Caribdians or whatever the, the word might be as well haven't you yes. so if you don't want to play someone from earth history or whatever then you just pick uh, a giant crab you can play or effectively or uh, the, the one I like there's two races one that's kind of like dolphin like and sleek and whatever and then there's another kind of like voracious predator type you find them delicious and you can have those two people as like player characters in your campaign with one of your players just aching to eat another one <laughs> the other one like comes from looking up his shoulder <laughs> this red faced <laughs> yeah. villain's licking his lips all the time <laughs> yeah and that that is what I was trying to say at the start of this podcast about what is the flavour of Savage Worlds that's the flavour, it's something with a twist in any other game it would be elves and dwarves having a little bit of racial enmity and a bit of a squabble on their way up the mountain Savage Worlds takes takes settings and just, just twists them a little bit or comes at them from a very slightly different angle but it's enough to make them unique, that's why this isn't the pirate source book that's it, right, it's yeah. not that at all it's not that it's it's the 50 fathoms thing you are definitely playing 50 fathoms there's stuff you can lift from it like if we talk about the necessary evil the superhero the superheroes one that's not a superhero source book but it can be used as such yeah but it's you you discover this stuff through play it's designed to be played first and looted second i think 
Yeah, definitely. And, and as you mentioned, necessary evil is not superheroes, it's supervillains. Because aliens have come down and it's killed the heroes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're playing a supervillain, but you're holding Earth cop now. And I really like the first, I think, spoilers, but the, the very first scenarios along the lines of some big villain tries to recruit you, and if you don't like go along with him, he just dumps you out of his airship and you'll die. <laughs> Unless you've got flight or something. But it's, it, it sort of like doubles down the fact that you are villains as well. You know, you're like you're not just playing superheroes with a different hat on. There's supposed to be a, a villainous element to it. So, yeah, I think that's a, a lot of it. I think for Fifty Fathoms for me, it's another fantasy campaign. It's exactly what you said. They wanted to do a fantasy game, but the guys like pirates and they like all kinds of different periods of history, and they didn't want to just have just elves and dwarves. They wanted something different. So rather than looking at a Paris game it's probably worth looking at it as an alternate fantasy game and not just a fantasy mm. heartbreaker it's a whole new thing and it's got the full adventure laid out for you as well a full campaign so that that's um, yeah. yeah a nice twist I like it and I, I think that there's a lot of that in all the games where it's taken a common trope and as you say just added an extra element to it yeah yeah exactly so I mean I, I hoovered that stuff up I hoovered up Necessary Evil didn't play that one just due to lack of time I would have done it's very easy to pick up a go with um, if I remember way, way, way back, the very first thing did wasn't a plot point campaign. It was called Evernight. Mm, so I guess yeah. I'm gonna, I, I might gloss over that a little bit just for now. But that was a, a good example of a fantasy game with a twist because that's where it's your fantasy world and the, the big bads, the mind flayers, have actually won. Yeah. And it's what happens after that when it's an eternal darkness and you're now rebellion fighters um, trying to get the world back from the bad guys, not stop the bad guys from taking over. Uh, but that was set out as a traditional fantasy campaign yeah um, but then the plot point settings came thick and fast didn't they yeah yeah I think the, the problem with Evernight for me now looking back certainly is that it's, it is a typical old railroad adventure and there's certain bits where the players yeah. have to be captured and that kind of thing and it's unsatisfying as soon as you play 50 Fathoms you think no this is a much better way of doing stuff for us I certainly did Yes. so yeah the, the plot yes. point adventures came afterwards and I think we recognised that that was a much more not only consumable format, but it, it fit with Savage Worlds better as well, the way people want to play it. It did. And uh, that Evernight game that I played, that stopped me from playing Necessary Evil because I couldn't do two at the same time. <laughs> and I kind of wish that, that I'd done did that. The way around. Um, Necessary Evil we talked about, and then some of the... The one that I got really excited by was uh, Tour of Darkness, which was uh, Builders Vietnam, um, which was which was not much explored by RPGs, not really. No. There'd always been some Vietnam games, but uh, for those of us who grew up in the 90s and were coming back from university with a skinful and a kebab in one hand, you know, there was always a Vietnam show on. Yeah. You know, Tour of, du Tour of Duty that was, the classic. was a thing. Yeah. <laughs> and we'd all watch Platoon and maybe Apocalypse Now and all of that stuff. So it seemed absolutely ripe for gaming. And because it was savage, the twist they put on it was that there was a supernatural element because there's always one that takes me back to my zombies comment really yeah. because there was some there was an undead element to Vietnam, um, and I, and it still to this day is my favourite role playing cover of all time. It's brilliant. Look it up; mm. it's absolutely lovely. It's a really clever stylistic um, device that they've used, and um, it stands up as a really good cover and a really good premise. It didn't massively work for me because this one leaned into the miniatures play a bit harder than the other games had done to date. And I would love to play it, but I'd love to have uh, little Huey kits and loads of minis and a great big jungle on a board to play it out properly and, and do it that way, maybe at a convention or something. But in my home game, I couldn't quite get it working 
because there was a lot of little battles and skirmishes and there was more of that than there was of the the plot point. Yeah, agreed. So yeah, if you look up the cover and you don't think there's anything special about it, look again carefully is what my advice to you. It's really clever cover. <laughs> there is something on there that you yeah. might miss the first time around. Uh, yes, it's what I alluded to a little earlier about some of it's just miniatures gaming and that setting definitely was that. Uh, it had like a couple of amusing new edges with things like the effing new guy and things like that as a, yes, it did. As a hindrance, which I thought was quite funny. Uh, but it is totally a miniatures game. Uh, the, there was very little in the way of actual plot play, which is disappointing. So I think you could still use that setting, but I'd be more interested in doing something like uh, you're all recon squads that have to go out and work out this supernatural stuff and you get parachuted in or line dropped from a Huey or something to go and sort a thing out at an old temple that's lost in the jungle somewhere and then you know find your way back and that kind of stuff rather than the full on um, claymore mines and defending a base on the Tet Offensive uh, I think for mm-hmm. Savage Worlds that's that would have been definitely my preference um, and it sort of it, it feeds into what Savage is about as well in terms of how you want to play it I know that originally what came from a war game so you can still definitely deal with the whole Mitch's thing if you want to I personally would prefer something like for example a good savage game might be Predator the movie and -hmm. I can see that happening in that setting in that there's something killing whatever Green Berets or something and your squad's like sent in there of mercs to go and work out what it is and you could quite easily have an invisible alien going around trying to kill the party as they're trying to hunt it down etc yeah maybe I don't think I ever will go back to Tour of Darkness but um uh, having looked back over Savage Worlds again, it's got me excited about a lot of things, and maybe I'll pull that off the shelf and and uh, but and treat it like the miniatures game it was. I, th- I suspect as a miniatures campaign, it's probably brilliant. Yeah, and and that's you know my fault for trying to treat it as an RPG when it was leaning more heavily into skirmish stuff. <laughs> so we'll see. The Smart Party are raising funds to help with the running costs of the show. We use Patreon, which is kind of like a modern magic item that turns you into a connoisseur of all that is good in gaming. To show your support, just to head over to patreon.com slash thesmartparty. You can donate a dollar, a credit, a copper piece, or a fiver per month. It all goes into the portable whole of web hosting costs and helps us look after you every month with new Smart Party content. Patreons get a big thanks from us, some backer-only goodies as and when, and the warm, confident glow of the just and righteous to help you sleep at night. Join the Smart Party at patreon.com today and tell all your friends tomorrow. Cheers! And the thing I was surprised about with Savage Worlds actually talking of the different settings and stuff is Deadlands Reloaded took a long time to come out. It really did. I mean, I've kind of been going through this back when I was buying the books in order. Yeah. And Deadlands Reloaded is, is a way off yet. <laughs> 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 but but you're right, mate. I mean, I think de- if for those who don't know, Savage Worlds exists because of Deadlands. Mm. Deadlands started it. The designer got fed up with his own mechanics. Um, and started to use his miniature system to to create a new stuff, and then made it generic. That's the timeline. So you would have thought it was an absolute shoe in to get Deadlands back out, which is a great game with a very storied history um, and a massive devoted fan base for it as well. And it had gone off into Hell on Earth, a post-apocalyptic one, and it was talking about Last Colony, and it was it was becoming a trilogy of games and maybe more. But they took their sweet time getting it savaged, and <laughs> yeah. I think the fans were busy doing it for years yeah. before yeah, Savage yeah. Worlds got it got it set together. Crazy, which I find an odd choice. But then now there's there's tons of books for it, 
uh, they've sort of gone into the mm. the reckon as like the four horsemen of the apocalypse they've kind of got a book for I think each of those now if certainly three of them um, and you know other kind of uh, campaigns and plot points and uh, there's a lot of stuff it, I just find it really curious that it took them like you say literally years to bring that out because that was always the flagship mm. that was the this is what this game's all about kind of thing uh, you know with using poker chips and cards which get used more extensively in Deadlands as well but who, who am I to, to question I don't know I don't know what was going on behind the scenes but I'm glad it's out now and I think that's one of the if you want an example of how to do Savage Worlds then Deadlands is a good setting for it it's mm. kind of cowboyish but like you say it's got a, a twist like all the other settings so it's the weird west they call it and there's all this horrible badness happening behind the scenes that your players initially touch upon and then try and root out and destroy and win against uh, but tons going on and it allows for all the cowboy tropes while making it a bit more interesting and not just as straightforward as a cowboy game which I think is the clever mm. thing about Savage World settings a lot of the time they give you your, the yeah. familiar stuff you want but also make it more interesting than just playing through the an homage to the setting yeah um we can't talk about Deadlands without addressing the uh, the poker hand in the room, mm-hmm. the elephant-sized poker hand in the room. There's um, Deadlands has its classic Deadlands, which it immediately became called when Deadlands came out for Savage. Yeah, had its fans, and a lot of its fans were fans of its mechanics. Now, I I'd still cannot get my head around the idea of like I really like these mechanics, even though the designer of those mechanics has written down in print what was wrong with them and the mistakes he made yeah and here's his <laughs> I, I i don't quite get it but there are plenty people probably still trolling around today who just don't like the fact that deadlands is not the same clunky old thing it always used to be they're mad absolutely mad in the nicest possible way <laughs> they just have different opinions to me i'm sure there's more political that way but they're insane <laughs> so um on the good friends of jackson elias podcast our good friends of the show he went through systems recently. I think it might have been the last podcast or the one before. And uh, Matt was going through classic Deadlands, playing a huckster, and what you needed to do to cast a spell. And it might not have been five minutes, but listening to it, it definitely sounded like he was just talking for five minutes to describe what you needed to do just to do a thing in the game. And mm. it did not fill me with misty-eyed nostalgia to go back to those days. I remember at the time playing classic Deadlands. We would play it, and then we'd all go... Oh, that was hard work. I just feel like mm-hmm. a chore. It wasn't fun. Like using poker chips and poker hands and all this sounded cool, but wow. I mean, if people still get the jollies yeah. from that, I'm not going to knock them for it. But the new Deadlands and the way of doing things, if you play a huckster in Deadlands Reloaded, you still get to use a hand of cards if you want. You can deal with the devil to get extra power and you know get an evil Manitou to power your spells for you for free, allegedly. Uh, but some bad might come out of it and you generate a poker hand for that and it's cool but it's pared down enough to maintain the flavour of using poker hands and poker chips and all that stuff uh, but making it easy and streamlined and quick yeah all of those uh, those cool classes from back in the day your hucksters and your, your gadgeteers and the guys from hell on earth you know like the psychers and all of that kind of stuff they were all amazingly evocative and you really wanted to play them until you played them and then you realised you never wanted to play them again because they're just hard and you would just avoid having to cast a spell which can't be right as a huckster or any of the other sure, yeah. things they had going on as a chairman yeah, but that like... would be the last thing you'd want to do is like cast something <laughs> as a Native American chairman to cast a spell that was actually useful in the game you needed like three days prep time and a bonfire or you had to like cut your own hand off or something it was like <laughs> 
I made a shaman once and then we played one adventure I was like I can't carry on with this like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I need like a week's notice before we fight the bad guy and, and then you'd have to naturally pull a full house out of a complete poker deck <laughs> if you roll well enough to get enough cards to then draw yeah. exactly yeah <laughs> yeah no thanks <laughs> no so Deadlands Reloaded fixed all of that mm. and Deadlands Reloaded then is not a plot point campaign Deadlands Reloaded was this may have been the first time I'm not sure if this came out before Pirates but this may have been the first time that they actually did a a standalone setting and system hack mm. for Savage Worlds. You still needed the little book to go with it, if I recall. I think so. Yeah, it's a long time ago now. Um, yeah, I think it might have had all the stuff in there. I can't, I can't remember. People can. I think Pirates books. of the Spanish Main was a complete game in a book. Right. Yeah. But I think I think Deadlands was a supplement that was bigger. Yeah, than yeah. The book. <laughs> but it had a lot of decent content in it. Yeah, I mean, Paris of the Spanish Main was an interesting one as well because that was based mm. on um, a pop-out plastic ship-building game that WizKids produced. Um, so <laughs> it, it came from like, like literally people with plastic ships, and we thought, you know what, this is making a bit role-playing game. Let's do it. So that's your classic pirate game. If you wanted to play pirates rather than mm. Fifty Fathoms, you pick up Paris of the Spanish Main. Um, I don't know, and, and that let you do Pirates of the Caribbean, yes. really, didn't it? Yeah. So you watched that movie, and that's that was as close as you could get to it. And actually, those little plastic shit. There's probably a podcast in this, mate. There was a little <laughs> phase, wasn't there, of little plastic credit card things in booster packs. It wasn't a card game, but it was a collectible minis game. Yeah. And you could construct them and, and put them together, and, and they were really quite neat. And that little Pirates game was actually pretty cool, if I recall. Yeah, I've um, still got some. And it, it was full of characters like Calico Cat and. Uh, and really interesting locations and, and it went off into do like Eastern Pirates and Barbary Pirates and I, I had a lot of fun with that yeah. and the Pirates of the Spanish Main book was a way of getting into Savage but you, that may have been your vector may have been from watching the films or playing the collectible stuff Yeah, and there was a that was a thick thick book and I reckon that probably still stands up as a, a classic pirate role playing game yeah sure why not I think that one of the benefits of Savage Worlds will be playing something like Fifty Fathoms, but if you just want to play a straight pirates, then yes, Paris of the Spanish Main's got some great art in there because it came from a producer of you know collectible card games mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff, um, and it's got all the rules you need. Yeah, it's got all the extra bits and pieces and takes you around the Caribbean with a, a paragraph on each island if you you know want a bit of flavour. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, for, for me, I'd, put, I'd rather do something different. So a long running sort of pseudo campaign I had at conventions was Type Earth Harvey where um mm. I'd just have a bunch of like crappy pirates and a like a leaky ship. But that was my you know, it's kinda like the the pair that you get in the Disney film as well, where one got a wooden eyeball that swivels around and the, the ball bomb with a you know, those two. Yeah. Imagine what what if your crew was just that and your ship was like run down. And I ran that as a thing and you know I moved the story on in my head because it's more interesting for me as a GM but people could drop into a scenario as and when uh, and that that was more interesting for me than doing proper pirates if you know what I mean uh, and mm -hmm. using the time to do the 50 Fathoms campaign but again because Savage is flexible it just gives you the bones of stuff to do you could do any of those three different things and it all works perfectly well did you run Type Purse Harvey just out of the core book can you remember uh, yes pretty much yeah uh, There's, yeah. I mean there's some bits out of 50 Fathoms you could use like double shot in your, pistol, your pistols or your muskets and extra little course, bits of rules yeah. here and there but I didn't really like this is the the thing that we that the savage people mentioned I would like banging on about is the core book gives you most of what you want and you don't mm. need that many other things <clears throat> so the Pirates of the Spanish main book for example 
has some uh, like professional edges if you want to be a, mm. a marine or a pirate captain or something. But there's quite a lot of words there for not a lot of advantage, and there's quite a lot of restrictions, and it doesn't feel like it gives you enough for the mental space you've got to take up in working out what you need to do to do these things. And you know, there's a bit around mm. how much you might get paid a month, and then you've got to work out how much every adventure time you spend actually soldiering rather than being on an adventure. And I don't know. Uh, the pirates books, fine, you know, get it if you want to. It's certainly got some cool stuff in there. It's got, I think it might have some stuff on fencing skills and stuff like that. So you know, mm. good for flavour. Um, I think, but the rules a bit. You can stick to the original. Just stick to the core robot. Mm. Cool. Okay. And then there was. There's been an explosion since then. So my knowledge starts to run out. I picked up Rippers. I picked up Rune Punk. I've picked up Sundered Skies. Mm. I'm working off memory here. Picked up a few more things and then drifted away from Savage Worlds. And I'll go back to look at it all this time later. There's been an explosion of stuff for Savage Worlds. And half of it, I don't know what the source material is. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what's what's the pick of of the other stuff then, mate? There's a whole variety of stuff. I think the the one that you've sort of missed from the classic ones they produced was Slipstream. Oh which yes, is kind of the Book Rogers, Flash Gordon. That it was that with the numbers filed off basically, uh, and that was a good supplement because it gave you the uh, the race building rules for aliens. So like the stuff that's now in the core right. book anyway but at the time it was like wow now I can create my own races this is super cool uh, and it gave you uh, another plot point campaign about that sort of genre so that, that was really cool now of course one of the biggest kickstarters they had recently was um, the Flash Gordon game mm. so specifically branded as Flash Gordon uh, you got a, like a rocket ship you could build up out of cardstock uh, all kinds of bells and whistles and add-ons for it and looks like super amazing uh, for me I was again leaning back going I can just watch an old 90s, 30s cartoon on YouTube and then do it with the core real book. I don't need all this. Uh, if you're really into Flash Gordon, though, that's good to have. Uh, and there seems to be a lot of settings like that. And again, it, it depends on whether you're into that setting as to whether you'll find it interesting. So they have um, the world of Solomon Kane, for example, which is not a set of books that I'm particularly interested or bothered about. But if you were, fill your boots. I've <laughs> got a setting for that. Um, mm -hmm. there's also stuff like uh, Lankmar book for example so if you like Fafford of the Great Mouse yep. you can run it in that world uh, and then I suppose the other stuff as well is you can look at all the different third parties there are so Triple S games have been prolific and their sort of flagship I guess is Hellfrost which is a, a fantasy world but uh, the ice is kind of like coming down from the north and everything's getting wintry and cold and horrible uh, Hmm. Now, I don't know. You've got to take your pick with some of these. I say it's all, all a bit hit and miss, depending on what your preferences are. So for Hellfrost, it's another fantasy-type campaign or a set of adventures and source books. It was pitched as a bit more Norse, and there's a bit of that in there, and I thought it was going to be more that way out, which got me excited. It's turned out to be more generic fantasy, I would say. So, mm -hmm. you know, pick and choose and dig about a bit. I could, we could go through, um, there's probably 100 different settings at least, we can start listing now. I don't know if you've got a list in front of you, actually. This may be something you're about um, to do. Yeah. I mean, if you... Well, outside of third parties, if you just go off the stuff that Pinnacle's done... Right. And why wouldn't you? There's there's in their product store right now, there's a few things that seem to have fallen away from the list. But they've got stuff on there. These will be a reminder for you, mate. They've got 12 to Midnight. Um and you've got like East Texas University I remember our good friend Simon ran a couple of games for East Texas University which was kind of like a uh, the analogy would be Buffy yeah. I think something like that 
Um, so that was trying to get some horror into the game, but you know, camp horror again, yeah. rather than than uh, the other stuff. You've got um, Rippers, which I think I mentioned before, which has got a really interesting premise to it yes. um, and, a, and a plot point book off the back of that. Do you remember Rippers? Uh, I do, and our good friend Pete that you mentioned already was super keen on that initially. And the the conceit's quite good. It's, it is kind of a little mm. bit like the Van Helsing film, in that there's uh, all the monsters from Victorian eras and stuff, and you're, as Rippers, people who go out and defeat them. And the conceit is that you then rip their bits out and use them yourself. So you might have a, a zombie spine or something like that, which would, you know... Uh, that these different monster parts will help you in different ways but you're supposed to then pay a human cost for that uh, and the trouble with the game for me is that the the penalty you get for ripping as it's called is too severe and it cripples your characters so you don't get I don't see how it's workable it's, it's all penalties mm-hmm. to spirit and you end up with you know minus six to all your spirit rolls which are used for recovering from being shaken for example and stuff like that so um, the idea the conceit behind it I like uh, the execution wasn't great I think they've had a reboot since then, so I don't know if they've changed it. It might be better now. Hmm. Well, and, and reboot is is an excellent segue into the last couple off the big list, and it is a big list that I wanted to talk about. Um, the the thing that Savage Worlds has done, quite apart from bringing in new twisty settings, is it's also gone back to the well of old games and and done that thing we talked about at the top of the show, where it's plastered their rules onto old settings to try and make them playable that might be a bit harsh yeah so i'm looking at two things space 1889 and rifts mm-hmm. now two games that have not troubled my table ever <laughs> and in the case of in the case of rifts i think probably for good reason yeah because you know but space 1889 that's got a lot of stuff that's really really cool about the premise but it was shackled to a fairly shonky, really old school set of yeah. Mega Traveller rules, if I remember, or something. It just wasn't working, was it? But Pith Helmets on Venus, mate. Take it away. <laughs> <laughs> so again, this is something I didn't use in the core book. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, I hope Pinnacle aren't listening by now, because it's getting to the point where I'm criticising all the products, but um, it's just personal. And don't forget all those books you've sold off the back of this. They'll <laughs> yeah, yeah. do all right. It's, it's all personal preference. Uh, so I think it's called Red Sands, the version that they did. And it's uh, a difficult book to consume. So it suffers from that problem oh. I mentioned before around um, having extra rules. So the stuff around social class and occupations. And they take up too many words and it's too fiddly for what you get out of it. I think it's unnecessary. And then the book. Like when you read Fifty Fathoms, or this might be going from memory, it might, it might be wrong now if I went back and read it in this day and age, but it all made sense as you went along and you got the story and you picked yeah. up detail and the stuff you didn't know until you read the other bits later on, but you kind of got where you were going with it. Uh, the Red Sands book, I was reading a lot of it thinking, what are you talking about? You've told me nothing about this. <laughs> and it'd be speaking about people or places or something that hadn't been introduced. And the only way to actually get the setting out of it would be to read all the plot points first, which are in arbitrary order because right. they'll be in alphabetical order with the location is or something like that um, uh, okay. so you'd have to jump around the book a lot to try to dig out the setting bit that you wanted to run the game in my view unless you were specifically doing the plot points and trying to run it by the seat of your pants uh, but for, as a GM it didn't give you enough up front to kind of win games it feels like you have to read the whole book and in a weird order to get the information that you want to then be able to run it so personally I was disappointed because the extra bits it gave you were too fiddly and just mm. the core information wasn't there there wasn't like a primer 
just wanted like 16 pages up front saying this is what the world's all about and that kind of thing and it didn't it was too all over the place it wanted a good edit for me I'll, I'll look okay. forward to the feedback from all the fans now tell me why I'm wrong <laughs> yeah great premise though I mean really Lovely. good premise yeah, and, yeah. They've, and they've got a good and with Savage Worlds it's a good rule system so you've got a great system a great setting how can you get that wrong yeah so I, I ran a one shot um, <laughs> I think it was last year of um, basically on Venus on the jungles of Venus because obviously it's just like an Amazonian rainforest up there and uh, you have flying airships and zeppelins and it was you know the Belgian Empire and the Germans and the British all like fighting over territory there and there's some indigenous dinosaurs and that kind of stuff and weird technology mm. so you can put all that together yourself quite happily um, so I did that and in fact I did <laughs> good um, could you do that with rifts? I I don't understand rifts. <laughs> it is a game I bump up against. Although I know a lot of people were super excited that there's rifts out, but not with the Palladium rules, and that seemed to be like a massive thing for people. They were like super excited to play that this game, is. but with a decent rule set. I don't know much about rifts, but I do know its reputation. It has a massive reputation, and uh, and, and one of the biggest things about rifts is people love the books for rifts they love the artwork they love the ideas in it they love all of that stuff but almost as much as people love it the fans hate the bloody rules that it came with in the first place like really really worse than advanced Dungeons and Dragons (laughs) which everybody knows has got problems with it but you can work around them and just like you know close your eyes to some stuff rifts was oh no not good well, and, that, and that's how I knew it as a like, great setting awful rules so mm. great setting great rules equals good stuff right yeah so that, I mean that was the thing I was going to posit to you might actually like Rifts now if you want to go and look at the because we were talking about Time Splitters too, and it's a multi-genre game so it's got you know cyberpunk science fiction fantasy horror western mythology all those kind of things all multi-pot together mm-hmm. it's literally the game where they've thrown everything at it that you can think of so yeah. maybe for a time splitters two type game, there's probably some stuff in there you could use. It's probably quite interesting from that point of view. Yeah, but it's well, it's, yeah, it's not maybe. my go-to. I'll, I'll be honest with you, but it's certainly uh, <laughs> I'm nearer to it than I was with the original. Let's put it that way. Yeah, that's fair, and that's a that's just a big license, isn't it? And that's what Savage Worlds has done. It's done its own things. It's got a lot of third party, and it's managed to hop up onto some some licenses that were languishing. Back in the day, yeah. and, and you know, and and plus, it's and we keep going back to this as a strength. If you wanted to do that yourself with other games that you found to not be particularly playable, haven't really got traction, I'll just throw out a couple of examples: Slay Industries, Blue Planet, games with great settings, great premises that that actually you you, you you'd have to house rule it to death to get it really flowing. Uh, and Savage Worlds can do that too. So it's got. A, over this last 20 years it's got a stable of different kind of approach vectors for it hasn't it mm. you can come to Savage from so many different ways it's it's not possible to like it all I'm sure but there's got to be something that you can like in there yeah for sure um, I mean there, there is just such a variety of stuff it's impossible to not have at least something that you, you fancy yeah and the, there's been some esoteric stuff hasn't there there's been bits and pieces like I remember Ken Hyde did one uh, about Ragnarok was it so the big world serpent had come to eat the world but died and collapsed across the globe yes. and um, proper out there kind of thing just a little sort of paperback sized you know I don't know what you call them like a pocketbook sized book I reckon yes 
and that's because I'm browsing the website now for for Pinnacle. That's not on there, so I presume that's something where a license has expired or what have you. Yeah. Uh, and I've I've forgotten. The day after Ragnarok is is where's Ken Height, so it's bloody good. <laughs> you can get it in Fate as well, yeah. and and Fate and Savage World seem to to usually double team games, don't they? they? Do. You can always find a Fate thing and a Savage thing for it. Um, but that was one of the ones that isn't even mentioned on the website because they've got so much stuff available. Yeah. 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 I think the other good thing about the the website as well, I presume the stuff's still up there as well as the one sheets. They do have some of their adventures chucked on there, so it's like mm. there is a zombie one, as you would expect. <laughs> Cold zombie run, I think, if I remember correctly, and a parody yeah. one, and you know a sort of horrory one, and you know a, a variety of different stuff on there. But it, it's a way of giving you a flavour of all the different things you could possibly do with Savage, which seems to me all the things. Yes, it does. Um... And then I think one of the more recent things that I was looking into, uh, not in preparation for this podcast, but in the last year or so, one of my great white whales that I'm always looking for in a hobby is a decent science fiction game. Right. And um, I came late to the party, but the last parsec is like the science fiction project for Savage Worlds. Yeah. I can't quite get my head around what it is, though. Do you know what it is? Um, yes and no, uh, in that I did know and I forgot. Um, so I've, I've read some of the stuff. Um, it, it, it a little bit expansive, a, a little bit right. like that. But I think a bit with broad. It has got aliens and it's and stuff like that. But it feels that kind of tech level, if I remember correctly. Um, I don't know. I, I I think this is again one of those that I, I started reading the adventures, and they were a bit too. Um, A bit not not necessarily railroaded, but it, there wasn't a flexibility in them. It didn't. I don't, it's that curse of fifty fathoms. I think there, there was too many mm. like coincidences that had to happen in some cases in the scenarios that right. the PCs don't okay. check this box, so it gets through customs, and then there's these space spiders that get to the space station. So there's, there's too many coincidence things that had to happen or conceits that you had to sort of like force to get the adventures to run. Um, maybe if you just look at the setting itself, the stuff there. Uh, it could be worth looking at but uh, I, I sort of bumped against the adventures again I don't know mm-hmm. I think it's a flexibility and a benefit of Savage you can do anything you want with it and then a sort of a curse for me personally anyway is that then I always think about what I'd do with it so whatever setting I'm reading I'm thinking like, well I'd do that differently I'd use this and I'd use that and I wouldn't do this um, so maybe that's a bit of a double edged sword we should mention about it Savage really is that because you can do what you want when you read other people's stuff you immediately think well, I can do it better than that. I'd use this instead, and you know, I'd make this simpler, or I'd add more detail here. Uh, but that means that the game at your table is going to be more suited to what you want, and you can do it easily. So it's probably a good thing. Well, that probably takes us to to the last part of this trilogy of podcasts, then, really, doesn't it, mate? Mm. It's like you know, what what is what is Savage Worlds doing for us right now? Um, if we love it, and I think we do, what what is it going to do for people out there? How is it going to appeal? Um, what do we think of this game at the end of like you know a good three hours of talk and in your case twenty years of play and GM and hacking, um, you know what what's the benefits of Savage Worlds, mate? Where do we rank it? Oh, it's one of my top three games, definitely, possibly top two. <laughs> <laughs> it's up there. No, certainly when it came out, I was sort of like telling everyone the ears that like gaming is solved. This is the only system you need, which is like clearly not true. Because 
there's different styles and all the rest of it but he's definitely for action adventure it's the number one game in my view uh, I know a lot of people like Fate and we've mentioned that briefly mm-hmm. uh, it feels a similar sort of niche but um, I like more game in my game and I think that's what Savage World gives you so it's um, it's just really flexible and good and if, if I watch a TV series like Space 1999 or Blake 7 or whatever it might be that I'm doing read a book or uh, a comic or whatever I immediately think like how would I savage that that's my, my go to thing in my head is and normally it's not hard so that's that's the benefit of it I could do I don't know if I wanted to do a samurai game for example I could use cypher system or something like that but then I immediately think like well I've got to build the paths then for how you get your abilities and uh, there's you know it, there'd just be work involved it whereas like I can immediately think of the sort of advantages and edges and stuff I give to characters to make five different samurai and then run a samurai game. So I think it's got that instant playability element of it. I think that's probably its strongest advantage because once you say you've got the rules down, you, everything else just falls into place. You can immediately think, and you can just watch a film and immediately be thinking about what advantages mm. all the characters have got and what hindrances they might have and how you might run it as a game. It all just falls into place for me. Yeah, I, I feel the same. I, I, In my head, stuff gets savaged before it gets done anything else. I could do it in D20. I could definitely do it in Fate, you know. Mm. And Fate, Fate, I think is um is an excellent system, but it definitely gives you a different flavour, definitely. Um, and I find it's very good for 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 some reason. I think Savage really works when you want to do movie and TV kind of uh, yeah. conversions, and Fate works really well if you've read a book. I don't know the words <laughs> and pictures. <laughs> well, it's it's got all those iconic building blocks in Savage. It's what I like. So I think for Fate, you need to come up with your own aspects and that kind of stuff. You so do, you need to yeah. think about what you're doing whereas Savage has more already got the building blocks so you think about how you'd arrange your Lego to fit in with whatever it is you're trying to do yeah if you know what I mean yeah yeah absolutely and I think you know there's it's in not that crowded a marketplace anymore is it sort of generic toolkit games you've got Fate you've got Cypher which you alluded to the GURPS is still a thing and uh, and I suppose stuff like D20 counts as a generic system but I don't know if it ever really did Savage has just held its own all the way through that, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah. It seems to be everybody's second favourite game. <laughs> That's why it's in the top two. Yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, it, it's got the solid set of rules behind it, as I say. Mm. Uh, some of those other things, like Cypher, you'd have to build the different abilities that you have or you know, file them off from different versions of Cypher or something like that. And Fate, you, you don't need those rules. You just make up words. It's, for, as If you want rules, if you want a game... If you like your game elements of your role-playing games, then I think it's the best generic rule system for that for doing that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't care okay. as much about doing rules, in fact, you want as light as possible. You might use Fate Accelerated and just not bother. Yeah. Um, and if yeah, you want yeah, to yeah. tinker about more and you 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 know you're a proper dice mechanic to coin a phrase, you might want to use GURPS because you might want to get down to the half point values of every different ability and skill and advantage you can get. Uh, but Savage has mm. got that nice sweet spot in the middle where it's light enough but got enough detail to make it interesting so what about Savage Worlds Adventure Edition then which is we've talked a lot about settings today but we've picked apart the Adventure Edition over the last couple of episodes how does that stand up in the history of Savage Worlds and you know is it is it the best it can be right now for Savage uh, there's definitely some I like the extra bits they put in there there's more uses for bennies there's more little subsystems they've padded out their dramatic tasks and things like that so there's more bells and whistles which is what the thing that makes Savage Worlds interesting 
people who say that it's not tend to use with the really basic rules and don't get into how different skills, edges, add-on rules all interact together to make the game an interesting thought experiment at the table. I, that's what I found anyway. So there's definitely more of that. Um, whether the new way of doing tests and having different conditions and things all works at the table, I've yet to find out. That feels bizarrely a little bit more leaning towards Minch's game when the game as a whole has moved away from the miniatures stuff at the table, it feels like. So it feels like yeah. giving with one hand and taking away with another. I think it's one of these, as you say, we're going to have to play it at the table a lot to find out. I don't think it's definitely, you know, it's not like they've not ruined my game. There's not going to be addition wars about Savage Worlds or anything like that. Uh, there's just enough difference to make me think, I wonder how that does work at the table, though. So we'll have to wait and see on that one, I think. Mm. Yeah, I, I come at it from a slightly different angle. I'd forgotten how to play Savage Worlds <laughs> over the years. And uh, I find the new book very thorough. It's really complete. It's an excellent package for the money. It is a complete role-playing game and not just one role-playing game. It's 20 role-playing games. Yeah. However, the downside of that is it's 20 role-playing games. <laughs> so it is a little bit intimidating to just... I, I honestly thought I could just pick it up and like within half an hour I'd be back up to speed for running my own games and generating adventures. I don't think I am. And I've not followed it that closely, so maybe I should have followed like, you know, what are the changes and gone to look at the living documents and just followed it that way. But it's there's a lot in there now, and you don't know what you don't need until you've read it. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> you kind of got to take it all in before you can start jettisoning some bits. Um, listen, it's not a massive, onerous task. I mean, reading role-playing books is fun, and they've written this beautifully. And um, The GM section, which we talked about last time, is really, really good. Um, but it's big. It's quite intimidating, and I don't want to do it off PDF. Yeah, I mean, I think I think this, as the general say I mentioned earlier, they say start off small and build. And I think the game's quite forgiving, given that the core is quite straightforward and simple. So if you get the the base, very basic core rules sorted out, and run that, that's that's all right for starters. You'll you'll still have a decent session, uh, and make a couple of mistakes, and then you can go back and think, oh no, wait a minute, we were supposed to do this here, or oh, you can use that for that ability. Um, so it's, it's the sort of game that does benefit from uh, playing at the table and seeing what works as well a little bit and it's it's forgiving mm. you can still have a fun game I think something more complex you're a bit worried about getting it right because it can make a big difference to the impact at the table uh, whereas because it's a bit more pulpy to use a phrase uh, I think Savage is more forgiving of errors and things like that and, and you just like I think two or three sessions you'd be back on speed no problem and you, it's probably easier doing it that way than trying to consume the whole book. You might be better off just running a couple of sessions and that'll get you up to speed a lot yeah. quicker. Yeah, and, and do you know what? I'm super tempted to do exactly that as well, mate. I mean, in a world where... I mean, this is the king of one-shots um, and we've also discussed how good plot point campaigns can be. Um, so it's got it's got both types of gaming that I love. Those really sort of like exciting one-shots where they've got a definite conclusion and then you've got those things that you can get deep into and backstories can start churning around and all the different agendas can start conflicting. So, yeah, I can't wait for this to be in print. I'm going to buy <laughs> it. I mean, I, I, the PDF's good and it's got me Jones in to do some characters and have some encounters and run some games. Um, but I feel like I'm going to have to put some other books back on the shelf to make room for Savage Worlds in my life and it takes up more room than it used to. Yeah. Well, another benefit we've got, like this is something we mentioned before about why is there no role-playing magazines anymore? We just think there's not a market for it and all the rest of it. Uh, they do have something yeah. called the Savage Worlds Explorer volumes, which are basically magazines. They're $10, which used to be the price of a supplement, so some people may book. 
and given the way the pound's tanking against the dollar these days that's a bit upsetting um, but <laughs> if you think of it as about six quid and with inflation that seems a magazine sort of price uh, there's a few of those that you can buy so if you're, if you're into mm. Savage there's a kind of like there's a bit of a hobby market that goes around it as well and as we've said previously yeah. there's an active forum and there's you know there's probably discords everywhere as well and lots of different settings groups and stuff like that so it's definitely one of those games that's got the community as well if you want to chat about how would I do this or I've had this idea for a game or I don't understand how this is working can someone help me out there is that sort mm. of community and support out there and different things you can get a hold of to help you out on that journey and there's the crafting element as well I think mm. Savage Worlds GMs like building stuff and working off their computers yeah. and if, whether it's like a bit of Photoshop or whether it's building a, a ziggurat <laughs> yeah. that, that's going to sit in the middle of the gaming table there's, there's stuff you want to build stuff for Savage don't you not just on a bit of paper but just in real life yeah yeah for sure uh, and uh, a shout, shout out to Paul Lawrence good friend of the show he did uh, Captain Scarlet game at a, a variety of conventions and he's got all that, the little dinky toys, little die cast um, angels and uh, you know cars and all kinds of stuff. And he he handcrafted. He, he made this an art. It happened over several iterations. But he's now got every like hats with little fold down microphones at the side and that kind of stuff and visors and stuff, <laughs> all of different colours for the different people of the rainbow that are in the show. Um, so yeah, there's definitely that element to it if you want it. Uh, but you know, he I, I, just. I think with the poker chips and cards and stuff like that we've mentioned before, it feels tactile. It does feel like a sort of game where you want artifacts yes. at the table. And if you're playing pirates, you want to get hold of some like fake doubloons or something like that, so you can throw them around as bennies. And yeah. um, I don't know. It, it feels immersive as well. It's just got that good... You want to be involved with the game. I think that's what I get about it. Well, what it does for me, this is a bit of a weird one. It might just be me. <laughs> if I go to seaside towns in the UK, you always end up in those toot shops where you've got like some news agent with a spinner rack that's got some kids toys yeah. on it for like no money at all and the other day I spotted a bag of dinosaurs for a quid and I thought well they're going to be in a savage adventure straight away <laughs> and right next to them was a, a bunch of Hot Wheels uh, toy cars but each one was styled after one of the Avengers so I'm thinking wacky races starring the Avengers being chased dinosaurs. by dinosaurs <laughs> down a canyon and it can only be savaged yeah. and it, it, surely it's the work of moments and that game is a reality yeah yeah, I mean, I was immediately thinking Transformers, that you had superheroes that turned into cars or something. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all there. Steel Ball. You've got all the rules to do it. Why not? Yeah. All right. So we love Savage Worlds, don't we? And we love hearing from people who love Savage Worlds or don't love Savage Worlds. If you if you think the Shaken rule is still rubbish, let us know. <laughs> don't at me. <laughs> I'm definitely at Baz. I'm not interested. <laughs> <laughs> we'd love to hear some of your savage tales as well because we've devoted quite a lot of time to this game because we really do love it and, and I, I can see some actual play um, hitting our screens and microphones fairly soon for this sort of stuff Time Splitters 2 for the win indeed and as we've sort of alluded to but didn't really get time to go into we're already, already over time uh, there's lots of third parties out there creating their own content as well so if there's some savage settings or adventures or something like that that we should look into that we might have missed just to the sheer volume do let us know and we'll, we'll stick our nose around the internet and splash some dollars buying some of the cool stuff yeah cool listen massive shout out to our patreons as well for keeping this show on the road um you're helping us out with our hosting costs which are ever increasing thank you ever so much for doing that we really really do appreciate your support that one or two dollars that gets tossed into the hat or five dollars um really goes a long way to making sure that we're keeping the content coming your way thank you for that guys and um you know we dedicate every episode to you yeah thanks very much with the exchange rate things are getting hard now but if you're in america it's cheap here. <laughs> <laughs> 
He's going to learn every day. Yeah. <laughs> Chuck us an extra dollar. <laughs> not that we're mercenary we appreciate love nice comments shares likes all that kind of stuff just as much so thanks to everybody who supports mm -hmm. us in other ways if not financially just by generally getting the word out and getting back to us and telling us about their gaming experiences yeah cool okay until next time when it probably won't be Savage Worlds we'll see you then you can get in touch with the Smart Party via your favourite electronic means. Look us up on the forums where we're just about everywhere, or you can simply email us at thesmartparty at hotmail.com. Your comments, insights, questions and revelations are always welcome. Roll diplomacy! Stay savage! <laughs>